Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, this is Dr. Santos, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> it's just, oh, shit. It's just, you can't even see me, but you know. No, no. And that's not fair. <laughs> welcome, yeah, listening yeah. audience. Have you missed us? Has it been a while? Did I did I forget to edit and put up a rerun last week? If I didn't, good on me. I it's just sometimes so, these details go by me so fast. It's tough to keep track. There's so much going on. And you know what they say, Santosh. The right. devil is in the details. Oh, he said the title in the It's true. All podcast. of this was just an elaborate buildup to another yeah. ham-fisted segue from your host about one of our favorite bi-monthly segments journal club yay so very very handy it's true so this week our selection of journal stories are ones that on the surface are actually you know very very progressive very exciting to hear and then when you look a little Mm -hmm. bit closer not everything is what it appears to be we're we're part I guess, of the health and science press now. Um, and, you know, we make, really, we, we make mistakes. It happens from time to time. This is to address, you know, this goes around, maybe it's a clickbaity title. Maybe there's not enough detail in the actual article from the source material. But we want to take some time to say, don't, you know, just judge whatever you see right off of your Facebook feed or whatever it is. Take the time to learn a little bit about what's going on. Or if you don't have the time, listen so to So let's us. start with the very first story that's been making the rounds this week. Teenagers are growing horns. So this one uh, showed up on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It showed up on NPR. It showed up on all the late night shows. Everyone jumped all over this that because we. According to the headline, we tilt our heads down to look at our phones all the time. There is a bony spur which grows from the base of the skull uh, down 
you know, into the tendons of the spinal cord to kind of brace, you know, the head being tilted all the time. And that's, you know, those type of bone spurs can grow due to irritation. Um, and Josh, I think we're here yeah, to say there's, that's not the whole there's story. There's a few more details that should probably be mentioned. But here's the part that everyone seized on for all the late night shows. There yeah, are, purposes. in fact, some bone spurs that are correlated with cell phone use, not necessarily caused by, over a wide variety of ages. This study was done in Queensland, Australia in 2016 with a follow-up in 2018. By the way, this was originally in Scientific Reports, which is a Nature Journal study that was looking at exostosis which is the technical term for a bone spur at the base of the skull. Now, the, the pitch that everybody was trying to skull. make is that these protrude the these projections, protuberances are basically going at an angle to help counterbalance our skulls as we stare at the phones all the time. <laughs> and by the way, these little bony protuberances happen to come along with age. Um, you know, you'll see it in people who really abuse their ankles and their knees. You know, they might get spurs in knee joints or ankle joints. Um, if they're machinists, woodworkers, that kind of a thing, they might get spurs in their hands, knuckles, wrists. Um, and this one, you know, this age-related thing, what they were basically looking at, our group in Queensland, was whether this age-related uh, phenomenon was happening prematurely in younger people uh, and also at a spot at the base of the skull, which would be correlated to tilting your head down all the time. But here's some of the questions that they didn't address. And the first is that the study's lead author, David Shahar, is a chiropractor and biomechanics researcher who has a financial incentive to convince people that their lifestyles are deforming their skeletons. He goes by the name online of <laughs> Dr. Posture and has okay. developed devices to prevent Technic. Technic, by the way, one of the best little like portmanteaus so, since Now, Nintendo. here's the next thing. When they're talking about the study, you know, they're <laughs> saying, all right, well, all these people using cell phones over a wide age range are developing these projections that could be related. What they also didn't mention is that they pulled the pre-existing x-ray images from 1,200 chiropractic patients, 18 to 86 years old. Now, the ages were evenly distributed, but by choosing only from chiropractic patients, they're already self-selecting to a much more specific population. So for all we know, this only happens in cell phone using chiropractic patients. Yeah. And so one, it was really retrospective, looking backwards, meaning they, they didn't have a prospective view, which is hard to do, right? Because it takes time for these protuberances to form. Um, and the other issue is that they kind of got to cherry pick their controls, right? Um, oh, no, but we haven't even reached the, the biggest issues. issue. This was here, just, uh, this was is... the first one. Second, second, yeah. <laughs> as they said, you know, in order to yeah. examine these bone okay, spurs or to say that cell phone use is causing poor posture, is causing skull horn bone spurs, they decided they were going to look at pre existing x ray images, as we said. So the first problem with that is they pre selected only chiropractic. 
The second is that they weren't really clear on why they decided to use x-rays as a measure. And then even within that, they excluded any patient who reported greater than mild pain from having their x-ray pulled, but they don't explain why. They also say some patients reported no pain, but they had x-rays for these patients. So, you know, the, the goalposts kept being moved. Yeah, they were trying to essentially kind of p-hack, right? They were trying to find something that they could find a significant difference given the number of cases that they could pull, etc. This really is a bad case of cherry picking. Uh, I'm, I'm a little sad that the methodology was not more carefully picked over. And then finally, in the science press, I'm kind of sad that, you know, this was a single article. It was a single retrospective. This isn't a body of data uh, or, or work or anything like that. One single paper retrospective pulling a limited number of x-rays and measuring these protuberances. This is not full, like, settled science. They only had two figures and one of them conflicted with their data's conclusions. <laughs> it did. When they were looking at the forward head protraction, meaning, you know, how you how much the head stuck forward, uh, and they were trying to show, you know, that there was, you know, evolving like forward head protraction. It actually didn't show the trend that they wanted to show. Even if all of those show. things were true and increased <laughs> cell phone use is leading to sprouting horns. Uh, bone spurs are not in any way, shape, or form dangerous. They don't lead to tumors. They don't cause significant pain. They do not impact your life in any meaningful way. And we should all be so lucky as to just randomly sprout body additions and modifications. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, Bone spurs in the wrong spot in the right type of patient um, can cause problems, uh, but yeah, it is it's uncommon. A lot of the time, um, these protuberances happen because of use of a muscle or a tendon or something where you get growth of the bone to kind of uh, as a kind of response to use and inflammation. So. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, uh, the, as they say, the falsehoods or the lies can make it halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. Very shoddy yeah, science exactly. uh, behind, behind the study. It was. The, the science itself was shoddy, and then uh, it was really sad to see the way that the rest of the... Uh, you know, kind of science media community kind of picked it up. I will give props and we'll put it in the show notes to Ars Technica, um, who actually put like a good debunked article on there and did a good explanation. You know, just thinking about how terrible was no science was, was makes me really stressed, Santosh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wish I could inoculate you against that the way I, that you're inoculated against the measles. But, uh, Oh, if only there was some sort of vaccine to deal with all the stress I have in 2019. There may be. Why, Santosh, whatever but do you gosh, mean? You sent me the article, you tell me. <laughs>
Which I was, I was kind of wondering about this all came from almost, you know, more than 10 years ago, like an original 2008 study. The idea of how to apply this discovery has evolved. And that's part of what makes it so interesting. So, you know, you can find good details. uh, You can find good devils in these little details as well. Imps, maybe gremlins, who knows? (laughs) No, no, no. Mogwais. Yeah. Oh, just don't feed them after midnight. <laughs> you forgot. For everybody listening, let's just do this. Okay, Josh just cut a bunch of Gremlins-related uh, talk. If you want to hear it, please sign up for Patreon. Okay, Josh, yeah. go ahead. Getting, let's talk about the research the original, Getting back to the original point. that Which is the Mogwai or the Gremlin in the details. Yeah. From which I strayed so far, but you didn't know. Immunization with certain beneficial bacteria can have long-lasting anti-inflammatory effects. And since inflammation is what is traditionally associated with stress and stress responses, including depression and anxiety, the gist of this article we're about to cover is that a vaccine could reduce certain kinds of inflammation that would in turn predispose you to be more resistant to stressors. Right. And this result was kind of a a long time building. Um, For a very long time, PTSD, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, we thought of these disorders as malfunction primarily of neurotransmitters, right? So uh, we would try to, you know, reset neurotransmitters a lot a lot like how we would do with mood disorders using serotonin reuptake inhibitors or uh you know uh dopamine modulation or or these these types of medications but we're learning more and more that there is an inflammatory component so there is you know things like IL1 IL4 these interleukins these cytokines which contribute to these ill feelings which come along with especially chronic stress. Um, Now, I should preface everything you're about to tell us, Josh, that really the only way we've been able to study this cleanly and in a controlled environment is by using animal models and not human models so far. Right. And we've covered in previous episodes why animal models are not necessarily the wonders that they are made out to be in the media. Very useful, but they're not, you know, just because it works in a mouse or a rat doesn't mean it's going to work in a human. It's not a perfect one-to-one. However, they found that in rodents, a essentially what I like to think of as cow tuberculosis, Mycobacterium vaca, shifts the environment in the brain in terms of neurotransmitters yep. produced, hormones <laughs> received, uh, shifts it towards an anti-inflammatory state. Now, not the same anti-inflammatory state you have when you have a fever, so it doesn't set off the full cascade, but it makes it more resistant to that kind of state. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's hard to explain without using all of these things, you know, IL this, IL that, you know, 10Z hexadecanoic acid and all these fun stuff. But you have not just pro-inflammatory state and anti-inflammatory state, right? There are many types of you know, inflammation and there's many types of modulating that inflammation. So so the eight so the study that was from eight years ago basically 
they had to establish what's stress for a mouse. You know, they can't give him a tiny little suitcase and a mortgage and send him off to work for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, so they, they basically had to build this model and say, okay, if we see these interleukins, interferons, um, you know, if, if we see these molecules elevated in the mouse bloodstream or maybe expressed in the brain, um, then we will call them stressed and we're going to correlate that with how they behave. And if you don't see that, or if you see, you know, several other cytokines being expressed, um, and you correlate that with like lower stress kind of attitude or movement or how they behave, um, then you'll. Well, before we get into behavior, let's talk about you know physiologic inflammatory responses. So they took these mice, and the first thing they did is they stressed them out. As I said by sticking them in a cage with a larger, more aggressive male for a month. <laughs> and um, for those of you, uh, you know, curious about mouse research, this is something we, we have to be very careful to avoid in most cases. And when we're doing experiments like this, we really have to work with veterinarians and our you know, very caring, loving experimental uh, vet staff. Yeah. Mouse bro culture is just off the hook like you wouldn't even believe yeah exactly <laughs> so a heat it's killed just, preparation yeah, of exactly. mvaca <laughs> was injected into mice and then again they were put into a cage with this aggressive male for roughly the same amount of time and they exhibited less anxiety like behavior and were less likely to suffer colitis which is inflammation of their lower intestines of the bowels so that was the original yeah so that was the original study. So for the new study, which was released this week in Brain Behavior and Immunity. Oh, wait, Josh, we, we have to tell them. We have to tell them. So they were actually able to uh, uh, correlate some of these also with, uh, you know, the, the actual cytokines and stuff uh, as to, you know, whether they could measure those cytokines and say, oh, this is also correlated with their stressful condition. So not just like how they acted. Right. So if rats injected, so basically they wanted to find out what specifically was causing that decreased stress response. So they know that this bacteria caused it, but what about the bacteria? Right. Exactly. So they started injecting male rats three times a week, one week apart, you know, so essentially now they're juicing in this yeah. bro, this bro cage. <laughs> sure, sure. And they measured all the proteins and found that there were significantly higher levels of interleukin-4 in the hippocampus. Well, that helps to modulate both memory and it's near another region of the brain that helps to modulate emotions. Right. After exposure to a stressor, such as this large rat... The immunized animals also showed lower levels of finally a well-named protein, Alarmin, yeah. <laughs> also known as HMGB1. <laughs> you get so happy when they name these things in a, in a good it's way. It's just the tiniest bit of care and pride in your yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, uh, Alarmin, uh, and actually it's a family of proteins called Alarmins, uh, you know, plural, but yes alarmin <laughs> they should name like sub discoveries of alarmins lion tiger oh, bear oh stop my. it 
the idea is extrapolate it out on a long enough time scale. You move from injections multiple times a year to maybe once a year or once every so many years, and then this could be administered to people at high risk of post-traumatic stress disorders, such as soldiers preparing to be deployed or healthcare workers heading out to the site of a tragedy um, to work at rescue areas, and that would help buffer the effects of stress and brain on the body and make somebody less likely to develop event-triggered mood disorders. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think this study was even cooler because they actually broke down specific components. Uh, a free fatty acid pushed this pro-inflammatory cytokine to be expressed. So they, they kind of find out the, the inflammatory fat from MVACA, you know, which they were able to isolate and say, ah, this is the part of the bacteria, which might be, you know, doing the most modulation. And they even figured out that they could block the effect of this using antagonists or making the mice deficient in the responder component. Um, so I thought this was so cool because not only did they hone down to like, okay, it's this part of the bacteria that's working on the stress response. And we can even show that like, we can take that advantage away if we block the action of that fatty acid. And it's, as you said, it's a lipid that binds to receptors and immune cells and blocks them from receiving chemicals that would cause them to trigger and open up. Yeah, I, it's, it's a beautiful study. And I think as far as examining this in a mammal, you know, in a, in a mouse model, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Could it be extrapolated and used right away? No. But the fact that we're showing clear steps along the inflammatory pathway and how it relates to stress. And by the way, Josh, shared inflammatory pathways that we have with these mice. So we have the same analogs of these stress pathways in humans. Um, you know, this is the steady march of science. And I, I love to see these small incremental gains in knowledge. It's, it's awesome. Now, as long as we're going back to studies from the early aughts and 2000 or so, I feel like it's only fair to offer the counterpoint that says uh, some stress also is good. You do want to create a little bit of an immune response, especially around vaccines. Now, to be fair, this is more of a pediatric study, which means it's much more in your wheelhouse than mine. For me, pediatrics is around 30 years old. Yeah. Um, when you have a vaccine injected, right? Uh, vaccines are injected with stuff called adjuvant. So you have the protein, which is supposed to be the bad guy. So you, you have the purified portion of, you know, that evil tetanus, you know, so you take the toxin and you turn it into a toxoid. So it doesn't really work, but it, you still have the parts that you want the antibodies to attack. And then you put in an adjuvant, which kind of turns up your immune system and says, hey, there's a bad thing here. You should attack it. Encourage the inflammatory system to peak right when it's introducing the antigen, in this case, the toxoid for tetanus. And then your immune system attacks and then it learns and it has memory, uh, at least for the next 10 years in the case of tetanus. 
Now imagine you have an upcoming surgery scheduled, and like any normal person, you're going to be concerned about it. You're going to worry. You're going to have a little bit of stress. Well, that's going to increase the number of circulating immune cells, which means when you do undergo said operation, you will be a certain percentage less likely to get an infection because your body's defenses are already mustered. So that, not catch up. (laughs) I relish relish these jokes. Terrible. We went almost (laughs) halfway through this episode without this bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we went halfway without editing any more of it out. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. So from an evolutionary perspective, this makes sense. But interestingly, cortisol, one of the hormones that is most released during stress, is also the one that best suppresses the immune system. That's why we give steroids for so, so many things in acute situations in the hospital. All we can say is while getting rid of stress is great, we're not looking at a vaccine that'll just turn everybody into like a surfer, stoned, you know, (laughs) take it easy, big Lebowski dude, bro. Instead... This is really meant to help create an additional layer of protection for people who are going to be presented with very high stress situations. Right. Physiologic stress in the short term is extremely helpful. It's part of our evolved fight or flight response. It helps us respond to danger, become more alert quicker, turns up our muscular responses, increases our heart rate, makes us move. Um, But the problem is our physiology was never meant to handle low to moderate amounts of stress over extended periods of time the way we do in kind of today's modern society. (laughs) The way I've done since 2016. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, modern industrialized society right now, as much, you know, it gives us good things. The biggest problems that we have is we have this low baseline level of stress that's increased and sticks around for months to years. That type of stress response just destroys us and it's no good. So this is the this is the good and the bad, the yin and the yang. Now, one of the things that they used to recommend back in Victorian times for people suffering from a case of the vapors or hysteria or any number of old timey affliction names was to head out to the country Mm -hmm. and get some of that fresh country air oh yeah yeah you could do it for uh consumption you could do it for the consumption you could do it for uh the syphilis so getting out to the country wasn't just a great and practical solution back in victorian times it turns out that it may be helpful today too although I should say not just getting out to the country for fresh and less polluted air, but it turns out that uh, when country bacteria come to the big city, they may just help out folk in ways they didn't expect. (laughs) Why do you have to talk like that? There's country folk that have no southern accents. Yeah, but I said country bacteria. Oh, And I forgot. Knows. You're right. You know what? You're, when you're right, you're right. Country <laughs> bacteria all have a vaguely southern accent. Just, <laughs> just a hint. Nothing you can place. <laughs> Stupid. So, of course, I'm not focusing exclusively on one lone 
isolated country bacterium. Oh, but instead, this on study was done in Germany. <laughs> yeah, but my German accent is shitty. So <laughs> fine, Killjoy. No, no, Children, no, 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 no. It's fine. Children who grow up on farms have a lower risk of developing asthma because of the bacteria they grow up around. There, you happy now? Take away all the showmanship? Go ahead and just teach us some science. Drop some knowledge. I'm just trying to make sure that we don't (laughs) insult everybody. I was was half, I was three quarters waiting for you to be like, fine, if that's the way you feel about it. (laughs) Now walk this way. (laughs) So... The the children will go out to the country to receive the streptococcus. <laughs> yes. Oh, we could get lost in this for quite a while, listener. Yeah. But here's here's the deal. If you grew up on a farm in a rural area, like I don't know Iowa, you have a lower risk of developing asthma, and this study was perf- a study was performed in Finland and Germany to discover mm-hmm. why. So the, there was an original modeling study looking at farm and non farm homes in Finnish birth cohorts. Those aren't birth cohorts which have been completed. Those are birth cohorts from Finland. And this study was really to replicate this uh, in rural German children um, and compare these results to the study from Finland. Um, So it it was a really good, you know, kind of replication and follow-up study uh, to the one that was done previously. And it's it's a cool study. This paper was awesome. I mean, the highlights include the fact that they took samples when the children were two months old and likely to be crawling, so therefore they're exposed to floor microbes. And then mm-hmm. they followed up with these same kids at six years old to see how many were diagnosed with asthma, and they're going to continue to follow them into their teenage years and beyond to see how many grow out of the asthma, what other conditions may be more prevalent in farm children versus city children, and so on. But they already have discovered that in the rural groups, there was a clear difference in the dust found in those farms. Namely, a lot more animal bacteria were mixed in. Cattle, uh, dogs with an oink oink here and a cluck cluck there. Uh. (laughs) Here a cow, there a hen. You know, everywhere bacterium. (laughs) Yeah, and they had these birth cohorts. They had Lucas 1 and Lucas 2, which were the Finnish birth cohorts. Or Lucas (laughs) 1! Well, Lucas 1 was a whole cohort and Lucas 2 was another complete cohort. So it it wasn't uh, a single uh, Finnish. You're Lucas 1 and I'm Lucas B. There is, <laughs> and the German study uh, had uh, Gabriella. Those were the rural children. Uh, so Gabriella uh, was also had. They had Gabriella farm home and Gabriella animal shed, uh, and then Gabrielle uh, non farm. 
So, so they had uh, those cohorts, Gabriel from the German ones and the Lucas from the Finnish ones. Now, we've seen similar kinds of results from studies performed on people with allergies. If you grow up in essentially dirtier environments, more animals, more plant dander, more spores. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, but with less uh, industrial uh dirt yes you know what i'm talking about so less less things that are product of fossil fuel burning or asphalt or tarmac or that little more woodstock little less chernobyl (laughs) so when the team studied blood samples from these children they found ones in homes with more farm-like bacteria didn't produce immune responses to the bacteria because they were recognized as part of the environment or their microbiome, and they tolerate them better. So this study was then replicated, as we said, with German children with the exact same relationship found that spreads across different cultures and countries. They were also able to find in the uh, bacterial, the the microbiota. So the, you know, you took samples from the stool and actually looked at what microbes were growing in there. Um, They were able to see kind of clear differences between some of these cohorts. So like the Gabrielle non-farm and farm home kind of clustered. And then the Gabrielle animal shed had its own little cluster. And then the Lucas non-farm and the Lucas farm home um, were kind of its own cluster. So that you had like little shifts in the, the microbiota. So... The bad news about this is it's really only a one-way benefit. You can't suddenly up and move to the country Green Acre style and <laughs> and get an instant cure for your asthma, although you will likely get significant improvement in your allergies. Uh, this really is only going to be of benefit to you if you already were growing up on a farm in that optimal window. And this uh, has to do with kind of the cascade of events that sets someone up for one of these chronic disorders. You know, you know, once you already have uh, downstream effects of forming allergies or asthma, um, you can't really walk it back by trying to re-engineer the microbiota and the stuff that you're exposed to. Although, Josh, it did really seem like they could affect allergic kind of things, right? But I think that had to do more with, you know, they changed what the kids were being exposed to. So they probably just took away the the thing that um, precipitated each allergic attack by moving them to the yes. country. So if they remove the initial influence, it would be improved with allergies, but not so much with asthma. And this would help to make the diagnosis. Right. So now that we've kind of talked about farm bacteria and difficulty breathing, let's move on to another much more serious condition or I should say at least more rare in terms of breathing difficulties Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about cystic fibrosis. Now, the quick and dirty on cystic fibrosis is it's a disease that gives you, because of a genetic mutation, very, very thick mucus. Your body just doesn't produce a naturally thin mucus that we normally need. And this can both clog up your lungs making it difficult to breathe, as well as clog up your digestive system, making it harder to secrete enzymes to help you break down foods and get energy from them. If you're a carrier of cystic fibrosis, um, there is a little evolutionary advantage. It seems to be that because it's harder to secrete stuff out, 
um, which is the principal thing that happens in cholera. You have a secretory diarrhea. Um, so people who are carriers with cystic fibrosis gene actually have uh, a little bit of resistance to cholera-like episodes or, or cholera disease. So that seems to be why this particular gene has persisted so long in the human population. Yeah, so I mean, I imagine you could find a significant number of carriers in the Oregon Trail. Yeah. <laughs> there was one. A lot of uh, European Americans, actually, because uh, cholera outbreaks tended to happen in that cohort of humans historically. Now, we've really only begun to make progress on these on this disease in the late, late 80s. And the CFTR gene was only mm -hmm. discovered in 1989. So that's the gene that is responsible for the faulty protein that gives people this thick secretory mucus. Yeah, when it's mutated, this is one of your bad mutants there, Josh. When it's, <laughs> when it's mutated, it can't transport chloride properly. So all of the secretions become thick and hard to move. And just as a kind of to tell you where we've how far we've come in the 1980s our kids lived to about you know 15 to 18 years of age if they were really lucky um, with modern therapy even before these new drugs came about the expected lifespan of a child born today with cystic fibrosis uh, is around age 40 years before they pass away from their disease. Now, there are things that can help to delay this. Now, there first is a drug called Calideco that has been available since 2012 that makes the corrected version. So it basically provides a substitute for the defunct protein. But it only works on one specific kind of mutation, and only about 5% of people have that specific mutation. So there's very limited utility, although for those people, it's a wonderful drug. A second drug was later developed called Lumacaftor, and the two of them were combined to create a drug called Orcombi. These names mean about as much to me as they do to you folks. They're all just made up words, so don't no. stress too much about it. We don't have that vaccine ready for you. Yeah, we can actually give you the the actual names. Lumacaftor is one component, and the other component is Ivacaftor. Now, these target the most common CFTR mutations and extend treatment options to up to almost 50% of people with cystic fibrosis just by adding that secondary drug. However, it did drop some of that improval. So instead of getting 5% of people to, you know, an extra, say, 10 years, you get 50% of people to an extra six years. Still impressive, yeah. but not as good. Right, right. And essentially what these drugs do is they're what's called chaperones. It's not like to the prom and stuff, right? So these these drugs, when the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, CFTR, I absolutely love it. So when those proteins have a mutation, they don't fold properly. That's called the tertiary structure. So if they don't fold properly, they can't function properly. So these CAFTORs, IVACAFTOR uh, and the other one, um, they kind of hold hold the hand of the little misfolded protein and say, nope, you're not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to fold oh, like this. Oh, they teach them how to fold? They, they kind of guide them through the folding. Oh, yeah. that's adorable. <laughs>
So, <laughs> so now you get increased, you know, intact CFTR proteins that get to the cell surface and are able to, you know, do that transport of chloride ions across, and hopefully, you know, if it works right. Uh, get that mucus to be more normal. Now, for people who genetically can't benefit from those two drugs we already mentioned, which have been combined into Orcombi, a third drug is mm -hmm. being developed, Tezacaftor, that could extend treatment to up to 90% of all people with the condition. So that's great. Wow. But there's a catch. And yeah. unfortunately, it has to do with cost. This study Aww. comes out of the UK where there's the National Health Service. The official price of the drug is of Orcombi, which as we said has already proven mm -hmm. to have some really good benefits, is just over a hundred thousand pounds a year, which if you're gonna do the conversion is about a yeah. hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars US per, per patient, patient per, year. per year. The National Health Service stopped offering it because they said the benefit to uh, cost ratio simply wasn't worth it. The number of people with this condition and the amount of money that they cost the government's health system simply are not worth it for the government to pay for this amount of drug. They would rather take the loss yeah. in terms of just pure cold calculations and say it is cheaper for us to allow these people to die to better provide resources for treating multiple others which is an awful calculation to have to make. It is. It's, uh, and this has happened with a few drugs now. It happened with HIV drugs uh, when they were first rolled out, hepatitis C treatments. Believe it or not, everybody listening out there, we have cures now for a lot of different genotypes of hepatitis C. I, I'm not talking about treatments, long-term therapies. I'm talking about cures. And we can't, justify by cost giving these treatments to healthy carriers of hepatitis C. Like we could wipe the disease out, but we actually have to wait until someone gets really sick with hepatitis C in order to say, oh, now we have to actually give them these antivirals. So it's a it's a bad, bad way. To, so let's to get, get to the details. And now there's a loophole that is being exploited to the benefit of the public as well as profit for a corporation. And that's always surprising to see everybody, almost yeah. everybody wins. <laughs> yeah. So because the yeah. price tag, of course, is uh. far too high, they're not being developed or further researched by the original company, Vertex. But there's a way to get the medicine cheaply. Okay. Just like we have across the border drugs in Canada and Mexico, Vertex does not hold a valid patent on Orcombi in every single country in the world, only certain ones where they have offices. And one of the countries where they do not have a patent on Orcombi is in Argentina. So a different pharmaceutical mm -hmm. firm opened up their lemonade stand and they are legally making a knockoff cheaper version of the medicine there, selling it for about 23,000 pounds a year, which Whoa, is about 30,000 US I'm dollars, so which is still expensive, but substantially cheaper than 130,000. You know, and, and this is one of these things. There is really no justification for this, okay? I, I know some of you might out be out there and say, well, how much was R&D for all of these things? And are they pricing it out to, you know, balance out the investment that they put 
into, you know, in order to actually create the, no, no, it's, it's sorry. No, none of that stuff is true. There is no justification. What about the 20 years and billions of dollars it took to fund the research? (laughs) Sorry, buddy. You put it in. We love you for it. I'm very, very happy. But the amount of profit that you're seeking to make, even looking at how much money that you put into the research, it's not justified. You're, you are asking Mr. Corporation way above and beyond what you deserve in terms so of So the three solutions being discussed are one, Sorry. the government of the UK basically you invokes crown privilege and starts buying this drug from Argentina, essentially cutting Vertex out of the process entirely and saying, well, they sell it cheaper there. Now the whole country mm-hmm. is going to buy it online. Alternatively, yeah. <laughs> what is happening right now is that there are buyers clubs that are trying to get a bulk purchasing discount where multiple families and patients and hospitals all band together. Yeah to try and get the annual price per person down to 18,000 pounds, buying in bulk to knock another 10,000 off the price. You guys can see Mr. All right, all right, all right in there, uh, Matthew McConaughey. If you want to go back to Dallas Buyers Club, this was the example, you know, uh, in HIV, when people had to get together and drive the costs down themselves because otherwise they would die. A third option that has only been quietly discussed is beginning a massive clinical trial in which there's no placebo arm and every participant receives the generic medicine, basically saying, we've just decided to do a study (laughs) to confirm previous studies about how this helps people. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's the ticket. Which is which is fine because then in that case it's going to be an NHS funded trial, you know. So they're just going to go in and say, "All right, fine. We need to put our own government money into this and we need to so fund this type of a it's trial." It's an interesting Fantastic. insight into again, using loopholes to help on the patient side instead of to debunk a study or remove something from development or some other equally disappointing outcome. I'm heartbroken that we need to do this. It's absolutely dumb that we need to do this, but good people are going to step up like this while the system takes its time to change. So that is it for all our tiny little details. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed the Dancing Devils. <laughs> uh, and one Mogwai. So uh, if you are a Patreon mm-hmm. listener this week, yeah. you'll get a little behind the scenes clip about Mogwai and a few other conversational tidbits that Santosh and I discuss before starting the formal recording. <laughs> oh, Battenson. Oh, let us know, by the way, you guys, if amongst all this medical stuff, what you guys Especially think Especially since we are love to hear from rapidly you. approaching this year's comic book medicine. You guys have no idea. I mean, those... You get so excited about this. But this is uh, bar none, our best episode. So tell all your friends to, you know, please subscribe and start listening. So, so that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources that we used in researching this week's episode. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.